Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. When George Floyd's brutal killing was captured on video, President Donald Trump tried to create a photo opportunity. Standing in front of the Church of the Presidents in Washington, D.C., holding a Bible upside down, he declared war on the Black Lives Matter protesters who had taken to the streets across the nation. This was the trenchant observation of the Reverend Robert Hendrickson. This is an awful man, he said, waving a book he hasn't read in front of a church he doesn't attend, invoking laws he doesn't understand against fellow Americans he sees as enemies, wielding a military he dodged serving to protect power he gained via accepting foreign interference, exploiting fear and anger he loves to stoke after failing to address a pandemic he was warned about and building it all on a bed of constant lies and childish inanity. Closer to home, a mile down the road from where I live, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rome Williams, called the photo op idolatry. Black Lives Matter protests quickly spread across Europe, and many in the crowds trying, not always successfully, to adhere to social distancing rules. In England, the statue of the 17th century slave trader Edward Colston was tipped into Bristol Harbour, and Robert Milligan's statue was removed in London. Are we in the process of reaching a more general tipping point in our attitudes towards racial inequality? It's a question that's been asked before. With me to discuss this most contentious and important of topics are Dr. Kenny Monrose of Wolfson College, Cambridge. Kenny is the author of Black Men in Britain, a study of the post-Windrush generation in which he explores an invisible population of black men who grew up during the 1970s and 80s in post-industrial Britain and part of an environment that rendered them irrelevant and indistinguishable. And Dr. Monica Moreno-Figueroa, of Downing College, Cambridge, co-founder of the collective Copera, which aims to tackle racism in Mexico, which is where she is speaking to us. Monica is interested in projects which aim to make racism public as a strategy for its elimination. I think I'm compelled to start by asking you both for a reaction to the killing of George Floyd and the subsequent protest movements around the world. What do you think makes this particular case a turning point in the response of the general public? Kenny. Um, I want to start by saying when I first received the, the WhatsApp video of the killing of George Floyd, um, I didn't look at it immediately because it was a 10 minute long video. And, you know, I had other things to do. So I thought I'd put it off till, till a little bit later. When I did eventually look at it, what I, what I saw wasn't entirely shocking. And I say that because we, you know, we used to getting footage of black men being at the, the or black people being at, at the hand of police brutality. What made it uncomfortable for me, and what did shock me, was the the actions of his colleague who stood, or his colleagues who stood by, why this 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 public execution took place without challenging him or without, you know, calling out the actions. And what is interesting is that. Earlier in the day, there was a video that went round from America again involving Amy Amy Cooper, a white lady in in Central Park who was called out 
by a black man for not having a dog in a leash in a particular space where, you know, pets are supposed to be controlled. And her immediate response to this was calling 911, calling the emergency services, because she felt she was being threatened by a black man. She felt intimidated. And this is something that many black people have, have been subject to in the past, myself included, where you're regarded as being intimidating or aggressive just by virtue of your presence. In many ways, it's like, a, a you know, the black, black skin being seen as a, some sort of weapon for some people. What makes this a turning point? I think it's allowed people the space to open a dialogue on this issue, this long, long going issue, this lengthy issue of, of, of police brutality for, for, for black people. What about you, Monica? I actually haven't seen the video. I can't stand seeing the image. I just really flick through very quickly. Because the effect that those things want to enact on the population, particularly Black and people of colour, works. You know, it does impact. It makes you feel insecure. It makes you feel small, powerless, you know, and that nobody cares. And I think in that sense, I wonder how many people uh, feel like that, you know, and that racism achieves its goal and this kind of violence achieves its goal by making us feel scared for our lives, retract. And it, it was so good to see that so many were able to get over that. So we were able to get over that first and start a series of actions or some it might have been just doing things in social media which is with the pandemic something you can't do but even in Mexico now it has been amazing the organization and the response the people getting out in the streets and taking on board something that for this part of the world in Mexico and Latin America, well, Mexico, I would say, because that there is a very small growing, but very small black movement. People are taking it on, you know, people are taking it on and talking about it. Sadly, there was a similar case um, with a man called uh, Giovanni Lopez, who was killed by the police because he wasn't wearing a mask and it was he was taken off to the police quarters in the state of Jalisco and then he was um, the next day he appeared killed uh, dead the protest became a protest of understanding that police brutality is something that happens everywhere that what is amazing in the Mexican case, where it's a place where we're just starting to have conversations about racism and race in a public arena, maybe in the last five years, but something that has, it's growing, but in, you know, it has no comparison to the way we have conversations in the UK or the US. So what is impressive is that people start to make connections between police brutality and racism. So it sounds like for both of you, the killing has created a space in which this conversation can take place, has to take place. And that feeling has spread um, throughout throughout society. Um, I wonder if we could touch on what might be specific about the British context or British racism. 
I mean, is there any light that, that you can shed? Let's start with you, Kenny, with your work. I really think it's uh, the, the issue of policing is always flagged up as a something that can underscore racism w- w- within British society. And I, I, I really think we need to, again, we need to think about how policing is done, how we can address issues of policing that will not play out in a way in which it, it, it brutalises black and minority ethnic communities. We can see at every level of the criminal justice system, there's a disproportionality there. Well, from my research, from my book, all of the people that I engaged with had a police story to tell, whether they engaged in criminal activity or not. They had some sort of engagement with the police. So I think we need to think seriously about how we address these issues within um, within policing. People speak about the, the McPherson report in 1999, you know, after the, the killing of, of Stephen Lawrence in 1993, uh, how he flagged up um, the police as being institutionally racist. But they forget the Scarman report, which was conducted in 19, 1981, I think, after the riots in Brixton, which again flagged up the whole issue of institutionalised racism within the police force. What needs to happen? We need to look at the occupational culture of policing and address the issues that lie at the uh, police culture. You know, there's been a number of studies conducted into this. There was a, a, a well-known study collected in, conducted in 1983 which looked at police when they were, you know, at, at recess, canteen culture, and noticed a lot of racist comments and that sort of thing was taking place. So we, we maybe need to readdress these issues and look at institutionalised racism, not only at the police. I know the police is the first branch of the criminal justice system, and I know it's, you know, the apparatus of power for, for the state to be acted out on certain communities. But maybe we need to look at institutionalised racism within other institutions, such as the health service, such as education, not just the police um, in, 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 in isolation. And Monica, does that echo with your understanding of the context in Mexico? Well, it's a very different context and it's a very different way in which racism works here. So what I see is sense that there's a disproportionate uh, outcome for indigenous and indigenous people and poor dark-skinned people that are the ones who are more persecuted or more easily caught in the net, especially if they're poor, which being such a racialized class system is usually the case. But that is a process of going of making those connections, as I was saying, that racism is part of the key. Yeah, the key force that organizes who goes to jail, who suffers that, who has good opportunities for a, you know, a more decent outcome or a fairer treatment. So I think that's what I, what I see as one of the parallels. But going back to Britain, what I think is interesting as an outcome of what's going on is, well, the reaction that we see at the university level, where at least in the University of Cambridge, there is a big demand of seeing this more closely and realizing the importance that it has to understand that racial equality, but especially racial justice, is something that we cannot keep delaying. 
it's very interesting the amount of statements of solidarity that have come up and the amount of reaction against those statements, saying a statement is just not enough. People are dying, how like have been dying, and there we are with a statement. What does that mean for an institution? And not only the University of Cambridge, but you see that many other universities, associations, groups of like research of different kinds um, that are trying to kind of make a stand, but that at the same time that is received not so well in the sense that we need action more than words. We need to demonstrate, not just say, not just tell, you know, that we care, but actually demonstrate. That starts with where are our Black students, where are our Black professors and lecturers and senior lecturers and academics and researchers, where are the topics that address these issues, why are we moving on, where is the senior leadership that has more Black members of staff. So, like, the call for change is demanded in a very concrete, practical level. It's not enough now to say we understand the situation. And I think that has been a struggle for a long time, like, raise awareness and just try to people to come to terms with things, to be better people and nicer people. But that's just, like, not enough. So it is quite interesting to be part of this, to witness how maybe the coronavirus situation is interesting, you know, that it has allowed people some space to think. There is an environment or a feeling, at least, that I have, is that these um, lockdowns and quarantine situation has opened a dent for a possibility to stop you know, to stop our very crazy, like, rushing reactions to life and see, like, okay, what matters? What is what matters now? And I think this is it's, it's a good reflection. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. And my guests this week are Dr. Kenny Monrose and Dr. Monica Moreno-Figueroa. And we're discussing racism. The slave trade arose because the plantation owners who ran the agrarian system in the deep south of America were hungry for labour. 400 years later, the UK invited the Windrush generation to help out with its own labour shortage problems, but many face wrongful deportations, detainment and a denial of legal rights. These days, structural racism seems to have migrated into the digital world. Here's Harry Dyer speaking on The Naked Scientists. The features in and of themselves are bound up in the places where we find them that will affect different people differently. So there's a lot of, for example, issues of users experiencing racism and sexism and homophobia online that carries off on from offline settings. So, for example, you see um, Wikipedia, this, this global source for knowledge is 90% written by white males in the global north, despite it being sort of our go-to base for knowledge. It's it's not neutral. It's presented in a specific way. I think it was, uh, what's his name? Melvin Kranzberg, who wrote The uh, the Rules of Technology. And, And his first rule of technology is technology is neither good nor bad, nor is it neutral. And we see that online all the time. It's not good, it's not bad. It's this complex mix of things that's definitely not neutral, that's loaded with sociocultural 
baggage and resources that affect different people differently. So this identity online becomes this real complex mix of design and user and technology. Technology is practically unavoidable in the world now, and it's playing an important role in the spreading of information and resources related to the different anti-racism protests and movements worldwide. How effective do you think this has been and what's the next step? For example, what do you think of the hashtag Blackout Tuesday posts? Monica, you mentioned social media just before we reach the halfway point. Well, it seems to be a space, given the lockdown, that uh, is allowing us to communicate, to keep in touch. It has increased its um, maybe potentiality. However, it is raising a big dent in the world in terms of the digital divide of who has access to the equipment, to the, you know, to the telephones or the computers and, and also particularly to the internet service, you know, and it's a, it's a, a big issue. Uh, we have many places turning their, um, services to be online, but we haven't guaranteed that everyone can actually receive them. So that is a problem. And that is a problem that's going to be continue to grow and that we need to address. Um, I'd just like to say that I think technology, not just in terms of social media, has been um, of benefit. But if we look at, we go back to the George Floyd case and we go back to the, the George Floyd murder, and we go back to other instances with we, we can see how mobile phones have, and, and footage has been used in order to 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 highlight awareness actually to what's going on at the street level, and you know the police being equipped with body cameras again that is as has helped broaden awareness. Now going back to social media, I think that has helped mobilize young people, uh, and I think I think that's definitely a positive although I do think again we need to employ a level of critical thinking when we engage with social media trying to you know uh, differentiate um, what what's what's truthful and what what is untruthful and initiatives such as the blackout Tuesday in essence I think it's a, a, a very good idea but practically the responses that I've been getting from people that I've been speaking to about this is it may act out in a similar way as the clap for carers that has been taking place every Thursday night at eight o'clock, and we just, you know, it, it may just just peter out. This is this is what 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 I'm what I'm alluding to. So if we put these things in place, they they need to have some sort of longevity and some sort of continuity in place. Kenny, you you touched on um, issues of policing. You touched on structural racism um, and Monica touched on the need for action to follow these words. And I'm sure you feel the same. But coming back to you first, Kenny, one of the actions that has been happening uh, in the UK and not just the large number of protests and particularly young people of all ethnicities and religions and nationalities protesting, um, but also the um, removal of statues, uh, particularly people like Milligan and uh, Colston, um, is there a place? Is, do you, is this something that's, that should be done? And is there a place for statues in the public square? Or are we better off just removing them altogether? Um, I know it may seem like a minor point, but there is something about having models of excellence that people can look at. And there are some disastrous uh, illustrations um, that we find not just in, in Bristol at all, uh, of course, but all around the country. What's your view on that, Kenny? 
I think it's, a, I mean, that's a good question. My issue with, with the statues is that it's, I, I just think it's too su- superficial. It doesn't go to the core of addressing these issues of racism. I think it grabs attention, no doubt. And I think it needs to be framed in a, in a community context. So if we look at the statue of Milligan, the, the, the people of that particular location in East London, you know, there was a consensus that that statue had to come down. And I think that's probably the best way to, to approach it because it, it can be a very divisive issue. But the positives to it is that it does, it does grab attention. And this is what we have to continue to do. We have to make people um, sit up and listen. Yeah, well, I think that statues correspond to a time where history was told through the perspective of hero, heroic figures, of like individuals that will give, make sense to an era or represent something in particular. And I think we are now in another moment where I would be much more inclined to think of collectives, of other ways of representation, of a public art that is inclusive, because statues are about that person and their legacy, but it is about um, not necessarily, yeah, it's not necessarily very inclusive, I would say. I wouldn't be at all against kind of promoting a new kind of public art that makes people um, involved, you know, involved in their society, their moment, their culture. I think protesting against the sculptures of the statues is also just a symbolic means, you know, to express, like, why do we have to see this every day in our environment? Why are we subjected, subjected to this violence? Um, and it is a visual violence, a symbolic violence that um, it, it's important to address. Of course, as, as Kenny says, it's not, um, we shouldn't get distracted, you know. It's also like how the balance, the balance, you know, we have to do symbolic acts, but we also shouldn't get distracted by the work that needs to be done, which has to be, is, is related to, Access to a good life for everybody. It has to do with distribution of power and privilege. It has to do with resources. I mean, racism at the end is that, you know, it is about who thrives and who doesn't thrive. Because we could remove a statue and still not hire more black people. And it's like, okay, I want both, you know, and I think it's time to demand both. Does your work on feminism, Monica, how does that relate to this whole question of racism? I'm thinking about um, subjugated groups and groups that need to break out from the institutional uh, burdens that society places on them. Is, is there um, a resonance? Is there a parallel there? Well, I think that is very and it's interesting now that there's more and more talk about intersectionality, which is a very big contribution from feminist theories, particularly from black feminism. And it's like unavoidable, it seems to me, to continue conversations where we take into account the complexity of social life and particularly the complexity of oppression. So the ways in which oppression 
uh, works is precisely by these very intricate divisions that completely kind of built on top of each other. So it is not just about particular identities, but it is how they encounter each other. When we talk about men, we're talking about black men being killed by white men, and that's relevant, you know. When we talk about how black women are particularly at the very bottom of the queue for jobs or for particular benefits, it is it is important to take into account those identities and those um, those circumstances. If we were to just focus on gender or we just focus on race or we just focus on class, at the end, they're all oppressions that distract us from a good life for everybody and how that has to be achieved. And I think feminism is thinking, is a, is a caring, in a way, is a caring movement, is a caring theory, is a caring perspective on life that wants to take into account how can we more be more responsible with everybody and in my own work in Latin America looking at anti-racism in different countries we've come to see like you know it's important to have an intersectional frame because the struggle is intersectional you know the struggles are not just like anti-racist or just anti, I don't know, the class system or anti-sexism. They are a combination about struggling, struggles for land, struggles against environmental racism that have to do with reproduction issues. You know, so, so you cannot just separate things very easily. And that helps us to have action that is looking in these intricate ways, because that's definitely going to be more effective, more structural, with more possibilities of staying. Kenny, your book, Black Men in Britain, and your research on the invisible population of the black man in the 1970s and 80s, that, I assume, resonates very strongly today. Very much so. Um, just, to, just to tell you in a nutshell, the, the book moves away from looking at the black British experience through the eyes of, 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 of black youth culture. And it's looking at the black experience through the eyes of mature and adult populations in Britain, particularly focusing on the, the post-Windrush generation. So that, that generation that is affected by this hostile environment policy, that the children of the Windrush arrivals. Um, and and this, this assemblage that grew up in the 70s and 80s, which was a very intense time in terms of uh, race relations in Britain, as it is today. And the, 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 the book is actually set in in Newham, in East London, which at the time was a working museum to racism. There's no doubt about that. And you can see a lot of the themes that have been pulled from the book, a lot of the emerging themes that have, have been um, pulled out from the narratives uh, that were offered us, they still resonate today. Uh, and, and recent events have shone a light on those particular issues, you know, issues regarding, uh, uh, criminal, you know, as I said, criminal participation, absent father paradigms, and educational underachievement. And what the book allows to happen is, is, a, is, a, is a recalibration of these kind of deep, deep-seated deep stereotypes of black people. Well, if this is truly a turning point and a moment for more than just discourse, dialogue and reflection, what do you think might actually change if you're looking back on society in 10 years' time in 2030. Monica, what would you hope 
the landscape might look like? Well, I would just hope that we move very quickly towards being relaxed at sharing, at being more human, at noticing quicker whenever, when any dehumanizing stuff is going on, like from killings to not awarding somebody the possibility to study or to exercise their work with dignity. I, although that sounds like very grand, I think it's just the very basics of humans and humans' uh, relations. So I really hope that these lessons and the quicker that we are able to turn around to see them, which is like seems to be the case with this event that is kind of making us aware of how many people are worried and are, you know, with rage. You know. I hope that this is just going to make that gap of realization shorter and that move to action quicker. And last word to you, Kenny. I would like to, to just see people being dealt with in an even-handedly fashion. And we can maybe move away from these classifications that we have, such as BAME and coloured and, and, and West Indian and, and Black British and all these types of things that seem to change every decade. I mean, I'm just aghast at the way that these classifications are put into place. Um, and it will just be a just be a, a great day when we're just looked upon as being human beings. Well, that is an appropriate end to this podcast, and that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks to my guests, Dr. Kenny Monrose and Dr. Monica Moreno Figueroa, and thanks to you too for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, or reflections of your own, you can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac. UK. And let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. <laughs>